It's Tuesday at 8pm and you're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and you're very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and coming up on the show tonight, we pass on our congratulations to Caroline Hennessy on her appointment as chair of the Irish Food Writing Guild. And at the end of the programme, we delve into the 2017 archives to hear summer wine recommendations from Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. But before we hear from Caroline, let me tell you how to get in touch with me here at The Best Possible Taste. You can make contact by emailing me s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation, And I'm also on Instagram at Sharon J. Noonan. So journalist, broadcaster and author Caroline Hennessy has been focused on food since she set up the award-winning Bibliocook All About Food in 2005. She's a McKenna's Guide Editor and a Ballymaloo graduate. She's co-author of Slauncha, The Complete Guide to Irish Craft Beer and Cider. And she also contributes to a variety of publications and platforms, including the Irish Examiner, Irish Country Living, Irish Times and RTE Lyric FM's Culture File. And if all that wasn't enough, Caroline has just been appointed the new chair of the Irish Food Writers Guild. And I spoke to her last week to pass on my congratulations. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Caroline, you're very welcome to the programme and congratulations on your new appointment. You've been recently announced as the new chair of the Irish Food Writers Guild. Thanks very much, Sharon. No, I'm still kind of pinching myself because it's, it's such an honour and a privilege um, to be appointed chair of this of the Guild because the Guild has been going for like since the 1990s, somewhere in 30 years now. It's set up by some, some very, some, some food writers that I admire and I read myself for many, many years before I ever, ever encountered them in real life. And so it's an incredible privilege to be to be the chair at the moment. Tell me why they decided to set it up all those years ago, because as you say, it does have a very long established history at this stage. It's a really interesting question, actually, Sharon. And it's one of those things that, you know, because I've been a member of the Guild, I've been a member of the Guild for more than 10 years at this stage, and I would have spoken to some of the older members at different stages about the guilds and about how they, why they'd set it up and things. But um, one of the, when, when I became a chair, um, one of the older members, Marilyn Bright, um, who was the first chair of the guild, she reached out to me and she said, would you like to have, you know, come, have a cup of tea when we can? And, you know, I can tell you all about setting up the guilds in the early days. And I said, look, I don't know when the cup of tea is going to happen. So I, I organised a call with her this week and we had a great chat and it was just lovely to hear about the early days of the Guild. So basically, I think a lot of, you know, all there was there was only a half or maybe a dozen food writers um, in Ireland at the time. It was a very small cohort of people. But... Some people were pitching them against each other. So some people were saying, oh, but I'm going to get it cheaper. You, you write this recipe for me, but I can get it cheaper from X, Y, or Z. You know? So basically, they decided to come together to share the information so that people couldn't be pitching them against each other to get a cheaper deal. And also, because as a freelancer, you're very alone and you're working on your own. And particularly, I think back in the 19th, the early, like, think about the early 90s there was people weren't online people weren't on twitter there was no such thing as zoom and so you were working kind of in your own bubble in in lots of ways so this was an excuse for like marlon said we, we decided we'd get together and it was all set up in my front room and i think in the early days particularly the guild members used to love just getting together in each other's houses and uh, you know spending some time together and getting to know each other that way. You mentioned there about recipes. So was it more about recipe development and writing recipes professionally originally as opposed to food writing about maybe the great food producers that are in Ireland, for example? 
No, I think that was always an element of it. Um, you know, like there was a lot of recipe development because, again, going back to Ireland in, in like the late 80s, early 90s, where did people get their recipes? You know, there was maybe one or two cookbooks in people's houses. It's not like, you know, if you look behind me, there, there are stacks of cookbooks that would fall down and, 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 you know, knock the house over someday. But like in my mother's kitchen, she had maybe three or four cookbooks and that was it. And then you got the newspapers at the weekend and you cut out the recipes by Theodore Fitzgibbon or by Marilyn Bright or um, Biddy White Lemon. And, you know, you, you saw all of these recipes and that's how you kind of amassed a collection in, in, in so many ways. So that was one of the one of the aspects. But also when people, I think it's very difficult to write about food and not write about producers. And in Ireland at the time, you know, there were... There were it was there was definitely a food scene starting to bubble under. I personally remember um because I grew up in North or, um, not in North Cork, which is where I'm based now, but I grew up in County Limerick. And on my way to school, um, we used to collect uh, some kids, and their father used to produce cheese. And this was highly unusual in Limerick uh, at the time. And the cheese was called Glenochie and Cheddar. It was absolutely fabulous. But that was my first encounter with a small food producer who was just going out there and trying something different and then trying to convince people to eat it, which was a whole other world. And I think he, he had a hard job with that. But so food writers were always, like in Ireland, were always aware of what was going on. But there wasn't, obviously, the volume and the the energy um that there is in the food scene now and so it's it's been a huge change since the since 1990 to to this world that we're now living in and one of the key initiatives that the irish food writers guild is involved in every year is their their awards they do fabulous food awards and you've recently just announced the winners and these aren't awards that you can enter yourself into and you know pay an entry fee and then somebody sits around the table and judges them all these are very prestigious awards insofar as you just have to be doing your product well you just need to be out there it needs to be known and to catch the attention of people like yourself and your fellow members so tell us more about the awards and why you decided to start them so the Food Awards were set up in either in 1992 or 1993, and they were there to celebrate the best of Irish food. Now, what makes the Irish Food Writers Guild Awards so special is that the food writers themselves nominate them. They don't go off and tell the producer that they've been nominated. They It's it's all done, um, you know, very confidentially. So... Uh, we have every year we have uh, a tasting meeting where people buy the product. We don't ask for freebies or anything like that. We buy the product, bring it to the tasting meeting and all sit around and taste it together and discuss it and see, you know, if we think it's, it's worthy of a food award. And then, of course, everybody votes. It's all done by proportional representation and um, it's also confidential votes. So it's all kind of, we, we, we and actually it's been, been quite a challenge to do that um, over the last 12 months as you can imagine but we manage it and we're exceptionally proud of the way we managed it for this year because you know the temptation this time last year was to say we can't do the, 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 the 2021 uh, Food Guild Awards because it's just going to be too hard but I could see how much small producers needed a boost and needed encouragement and there are so many like you know this again I I'm talking about 30 years ago earlier but now I'm talking about just 12 months ago Sharon you know like there's been so many amazing work done by food producers to put their products and to make them available um, um, online and courier to your door and make this available to everybody in the country but that was only just starting at this stage in the year last year so I, when when it came to the um the nominations and uh, and the people that that 
uh, got the, the award for this year, we really seemed to, as a guild, kind of go back to basics. So we had like the beef and the, the butter and the spuds. Um, so just to go down through them, um, the first, uh, so we, we do every year, we do three food awards, one drink award, we do an outstanding organisation award, an environmental award, community food award, and then some years, um, if we think deem it necessary, we do a lifetime achievement award. So the first food award this year went to Abernathy Butter in, in County Down, um, created those beautiful uh, hand-rolled um, butter, butter cylinders of butter that are just, they just taste amazing. Um, and so then the, the thing is, of course, if you get one of those cylinders of butter and if you can put it on the food award winner number two, which is Bally McKenney, um Potatoes, so Bally McKenney is, is run by Maria Flynn and her husband David. And I think it's been it's been such a standout story during the pandemic because Maria basically had to change from entirely selling all the products, all the potatoes, um, including the beautiful Violetta and Red Emily. Um, and these gorgeous colourful, not just colourful, but in exceptionally tasty potatoes. So she was selling these into restaurants and hotels and they were gone. So she had to turn around and start selling it to the public and make a new market where there was no market. So, you know, and I'm expecting my, like, and so I've been buying potatoes from her since she started selling them online because my kids just think purple potatoes are the bee's knees. So that's, that's been fantastic because otherwise there's no way I'd have been able to get my hands on, on Maria's potatoes. But I know it's been very hard, um, very hard for her. And, and you know, they've worked very, very hard to, to keep the potatoes out there and to keep um, pushing pushing the product and and to show as well that potatoes don't just need to be a commodity product you know you can have really really good potatoes and have people spend spend that little bit extra for them so you put your butter on your spuds and then you serve them with a big chunk of tom durkin spiced beef um tom durkin would be a butcher that many are familiar with from the english marketing corp he's a producer of really really good meat but particularly his spiced beef is is my favorite and it's it's always what if i'm down in the english market in cork i'll often stop in um to get a big hunk of it now i know in cork you know spiced beef is real tradition at christmas time but uh we think that you know it shouldn't just be shouldn't just be for christmas it's um for me i especially love it in sandwiches so you know Get, get a piece of it, cook it, and cut it thinly, and then I use it instead of a pastrami or something like that. And you can like spice beef Reuben sandwiches are just the business. And so those were the first um, three food awards. The Irish Drink Award went to Conceal Mead and to a particular um, uh, bottle of theirs, which is the Wild Red Mead, which has been aged in a Merlot barrel. And I think. Again, for a lot of us who grew up during the 80s and 90s, our only uh, image of mead, our impression of mead, was the Bunratty mead. Um, <laughs> that seemed to be always available in the gift shops or, in, you know, at Shannon Airport or something like that. And I, I don't think I ever tasted it as a small child. But I just remember, you know, shaking the bottles because they used to sell it in little mini bottles at the airport, especially. And... So down in Kinsale, um, this this family have just decided to make mead using really good honey and using a lot of um, uh, lot of ingredients. Some of them from the from the area and some of them imported, but they're just producing something a drink which is is absolutely outstanding. And I think I think I don't know why it is I have this image of like mead as a child like from, from being a child as being syrupy and kind of overly sweet but the Kinsale meads are not like that at all they're you know you're they're like they're like a fine wine they've got a lot of different flavors going on and also there's a lot of there's a little bit of acidity there which makes makes them much more interesting to drink so those those are the first first awards so as you can imagine, Sharon, normally we have 
a lunch to celebrate all these producers and this would have made for an exceptionally good menu. It certainly sounds it and I must say that Cork did exceptionally well this year in, in your awards because you're talking there about the spiced beef and the concealed meat and then also the, the organisation Neighbourhood won a, a major award also which I think is very significant whenever you're talking there about Maria and Bally McKenna potatoes and those roots to market that she used to have before the pandemic, neighbour food has been such a saviour for food producers all over Ireland. Neighbour food was was on our radar, and I think the pandemic really brought it to the forefront of so many people's lives. Um, because we went from not because again first lockdown, we weren't let out. The, the farmers markets had all been um, gotten rid of. Um, we couldn't really get out and about to <laughs> to find all the lovely food. And supermarkets, when you're used to getting your food at markets and things like that, supermarkets just don't cut it. So I was very fortunate that um, Neighbour Food set up in Donnerill here. Uh, it's now moved to Mallow. But at the time, they didn't really have a proper base. So they started doing deliveries um, within a certain, a certain area. So I was able to get bread, the vegetables, the fresh eggs. Um, they had, you know, so many, so many different, um, so many different things that I could access. And I think, so the whole idea I suppose about neighbour food is basically, it's an online farmer's market. You go in, you um, put all the things you want into your shopping basket, like you do with any other online shopping. And we've become experts in that in the last, uh, the last 12 months. And then you, it's a click and collect system. So you pay for it online. Uh, the producers get emails saying, you know, you have to bring X amount of, of things. Like they get the, their pick lists and their pack lists um, to bring to a central location. And then you drive up and you collect your box of goods. So, you know, you can getting goods from like Hederman's um, smoked fish. Um, like like a lot of the um, producers that that we we have awarded over the years also supply into to um to neighbor market neighbor food markets like saint tola cheese um lots of uh, lots of the the small irish cheesemongers who again lost their route to market overnight so neighbor food was an amazing network of not just um people being able to access food but also for the producers that they they had a way of getting their their produce out there to market so it's been it's been a game changer for so many people and also i think the thing is you know when you're at a farmer's market and you have cash in your pocket and you're spending it sometimes you might be a bit more careful about what you spend but when you're online sharon you're just like I'll put that into my basket. I'll get that extra jar of jam, and you know, oh, do I need a couple of? Do I need one thing of purple sprout and broccoli? Better get two. And you know, there's that temptation to just, just you know, spend more money. But I have to say, it's definitely rewarded. So it it just makes it really easy. There's also a great one near me here in Watergrass Hill. So I was able to just go down, and that was in O'Mahony's, um, which is a which is a bar restaurant. So it was great outlet for them because obviously they were totally closed down but they're going kind of wave at Victor and Moira and you know it's like even just being able to say hi to people um as a socially distanced way as as I picked up all my fabulous food was was really really heartwarming our buying behaviour has changed a lot over the past 12 months and I think our diets might have been modified a bit also because there was the baking craze, the bread making craze over the past 12 months and that had an impact on the availability of flour and I think Brexit maybe had something to do with that as well. So it was great to see that there was a mill in Kildare that won an award also. Well, I'm so proud of Ballywar Organics, I have to say. It's been, well, I, I came across them again because of lockdown and the flower crisis. And um, a friend of mine, um, Teresa, the green apron, she had bought some flour from them and she 
was on Twitter or something. She said, oh, this is, this, this is great stuff. This is great flour. And I was like, do I really need 10 kilos of flour? Ah, sure, why not? And so I ordered it the first time. And it comes, like, so basically James, who, who's who the man behind it, uh, and he's a young farmer. Like, so he's, he's really enthusiastic and really, like, doing his best to make a go of this. So he mills to order. So I, and actually I've ordered a, a flower this week as well because I had run out. So I ordered on Wednesday, he mills and dispatched yesterday and it's arriving on my doorstep about half, half 10 this morning and I can bake with it this evening. So that is like, that's amazing to be able to get your hands on such fresh flour. The flavor of it is, is incredible. Like it's got, it's, it's it's still plain white flour, but it's not white. It's uh, there's this lovely kind of warm, creamy color to it, and you get a kind of a nutty flavor um, in in your in your baking. Nothing that that interferes with the flavors of what you're baking, but it just enhances everything. And of course, you know if you were making your banana bread, fabulous banana bread. And um, I was using it last year because of course we couldn't get our hands on strong flour. So I was just using it to make um, to make bread, and obviously my bread wouldn't rise so much um, without without the the um, the hard durum wheat. But I definitely managed to make more than a few loaves of, of very decent decent bread from it. But yeah, so like James, and basically he said that like again he was selling directly into food service overnight. That market disappeared, and he put up uh, you know like just a one page. Um, website with you could order you could order bread white or sorry not bread sorry uh white flour uh brown flour all stone ground um and that he grows on the farm himself also porridge oats and semolina and he said it went literally he woke up in one morning and it had exploded and he nearly killed himself then, of course, because he was he was a one-man show trying to, you know, mill and process all of these orders. He already had the grain grown, thankfully. But then I was talking to him, I was interviewing him last year, at, oh, it was in August, and he was, like, sitting in the cab of a tractor waiting for a shower to pass so he could seed a field and still having the orders coming in for the flour. So, you know, he was stuck into every aspect of it. And I think, again, with the Guild, we just thought it was a great story. Um, and it's, you know, it's somebody taking a commodity crop that people don't really think about until they can't get their hands on it, and then doing something really, really good with it. And, you know, both... like. I suppose for somebody um, like in, in Ireland, if you were a farmer and if you were to look at something like Ballymore Organics or like Ballymckenney Farm, like both of those, um, they kind of give ideas where you could take your farm or where you could take your business and they show that you can do this. Ballymore Organics has done a really, really good job at making people appreciate what can be grown, um, grown here. And then, of course, as long as he's got the mill and he does the milling, then we'll we'll all get it. Be, be very happy. I have to say, I use this flour. Um, I also use the semolina. Um, makes great pasta. And once I started buying his porridge oats, I haven't been able to go back to anything ever since. So yeah, it's um three three of of uh, my favorite products. Um, come, come from him. And we should say that it's not just food products that, that win awards at the Irish Food Writers Guild. It's also um, if there's a very good initiative that you come across. Tell me about the Green Schools Food and Biodiversity Initiative. Well, that's, you know, we, we just think the children, you need to teach the kids how to cook, how to eat, how to taste. That is just so, so incredibly important. And as parents, obviously, we have an enormous um, job to play in this. But we also think it's to do with education because every aspect of education can have something to do with food. It can all feed in, uh, to be 
cunning about it. It can all um, feed back in on itself and help help other aspects of the curriculum. So with the, the green foods, uh, the green schools food and biodiversity theme, um, is this program, um, you know, the, you, you've probably come across the green flags that that fly outside many schools. Yeah. Well, there's lots of different different elements to that. So this program, um, it's a real hands-on approach. So it's getting kids interested in where food comes from, how it's grown, how it, how we get our hands on it. There are cooking kits provided to all the participating schools and seeds as a, alongside seeds for the gardens. So there, and the staff aren't left out. So it's you know they're teaching resources and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of support for them. So the, the kids are allowed to practice skills during cookery workshops, and then they can grow the food and they can see how you know how it gets to their table. It's you know it's a very holistic approach because. You know, they get to see the whole thing from the soil you you till, the soil you look after, and how it produces the food that you can eat. And I do think kids, when they're in that kind of environment, they're much more likely to try different things. So uh, I think I think it's it's a great initiative. And I heard um, some kids who had been involved in it in Dublin and talking about it, and they were so enthusiastic they're like oh and i tasted this and i tasted that and the recipe so to showcase all of these producers because obviously this year we couldn't have a food lunch we put together a beautiful e-zine but the recipe that um michelle dermody the one who one of the people who's working on on the scheme put in the e-zine is uh, a, a spring these beautiful spring paper spring roll paper wraps and they're just light and delicious and full of fresh and crunchy fruit, or not fruit, but full of fresh and crunchy vegetables. So the kids love them and they're getting to look at look at food in a different way. So I think that's that's and that's a program that's going to be rolled out across the country. Now obviously this year has been a bit of a, a pause um for things going forward, but we're we're hoping I, I'm dying to see it here up the road in Kildare with my own kids soon. And then finally, the Lifetime Achievement Award. You only give this out if you feel that there's somebody very deserving of it. Well, we, that's exactly it. Because, you know, it's not every year that you have somebody that, that, that comes to the table that everybody just goes, yes, this person should, should have a Lifetime Achievement Award. But Marion Rothfeld, um, it Killeen Farmhouse Cheese, you know, she she was the lady that nobody nobody would have would have disagreed about this. She like Georgina Campbell calls her the cheesemaker's cheesemaker. Um so she started making cheese uh in Galway uh in two thousand and four and the Killeen main cheese that, that she produces is called Killeen Farmhouse Cheese, a semi-hard goat's cheese, um, and it's Gouda style, but it's made from pasteurized milk and traditional rennet. Um, gorgeous, gorgeous flavor, and quite a, quite um, readily available now, so you can get your hands on it. Um, it but, and it's one of those cheeses that's just fantastic for grating over pasta. Actually, uh, when together recipes to go with the, the award winners the recipe that we put with Ballymore Organics was um, a pasta recipe um, of making homemade pasta which which I, I supplied the recipe for that and if you make that and you grate over some clean farmhouse cheese you'll, you'll be in for a match made in heaven but one of the other things that Marion does is that she works with other um, people who want to produce cheese so she is like properly trained um, in making cheese. So she also has set up, or also been working with other producers. And some of the cheeses that she has worked on have also become award winners. So Mossfield Organic is one of the cheeses she's been um, working working with, uh, Caution Atira. And then also she's been working with Teresa at um, Conmore Farmhouse Cheese, another another Galway cheese that's, that's on everybody's radar at the moment. And in lots of ways, you know, when you look back, like the whole revolution in Irish 
food and in small Irish producers started with Irish farmhouse cheeses. It started from a very, very small base. And so Marion is, even though she, she obviously isn't, isn't Irish, um, she, she's Dutch as far as I know, she came over and she brought her expertise to the table and has enhanced and really, um, really increased people's knowledge of and awareness of really good Irish cheese. So a fantastic selection of very worthy winners there, Caroline. We must send our congratulations to all of them and, of course, to you in your new role as chair. Looking forward to the next 12 months then, what plans do you have for the Irish Food Writers Guild? Oh, Sharon, you know, looking forward to the next 12 months, all I would like to do is have an event where I get to see all my fellow guild members and we've, we've now over the last 12 months you know zoom has been amazing we've been able to to meet virtually that way and have our, our meetings our agms and everything but nothing compares to being in a room together and one of the last events that i was at before um the lockdown is 12 months ago was at our 2020 Food Awards um, lunch, which was held in the Marker Hotel in Dublin. And it was an incredible day. The sun was shining. We were all standing on the top of the Marker Hotel, sipping cocktails and then treated to an amazing lunch. And it just, looking back, it's like this beautiful golden glow over the, the entire proceedings, even though that was the first morning as I was getting the train from Mallow at Dublin, that was the first time I saw hand sanitizer available readily. It was just sitting there um, uh, on the turnstile as you went through. And I'm like, I'm, I, I knew it was coming um, because we had we had traveled uh, in earlier that year and we had been tracking tracking the arrival of COVID towards Ireland. But I, you know, we we've survived the last 12 months and I want us to thrive over the next 12 months and yeah if we can have a lovely get together somewhere with really nice food and just to sit down and talk with each other I think that would be that would be uh, that would be my dream in the interim it will be about communication about keeping everybody um, up to date with what we're doing and about looking after each other, which I think is really, really important at the moment. Absolutely. Well, listen, great to talk to you today. If anybody wants to find out more about this year's winners, where should they go? Well, if they look at irishfoodwritersguild.ie, that's our website, and there's information there on all the winners, and there's also a link to the beautiful e-zine that I told you about, and that's like you can just, it's like a magazine online, and you can go through it and see beautiful photographs from Paul Sherwood. Um, it was edited by our outgoing chair, Kristen Jensen, who did an amazing job on it. And it just it's a showcase not only of this, all this beautiful food that Ireland produces and the great producers that we have, but also of the talents of the Guild. So we're very proud of it. Fantastic. Well, listen, Caroline, thanks so much for telling us all about it today. We really appreciate it. And best of luck in the new role. Thank you very much, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, the new chair of the Irish Food Writers Guild, Caroline Hennessy, gave us an insight into the history of the Guild and shared details about this year's IFWG award winners. But if you're just tuning in now and you missed that, you might want to catch The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. Now given the fine weather of late it brought to mind an interview I did in 2017 with Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. The focus was summer wines and bear in mind that the prices may have changed in the past four years since we recorded the interview. 
the flavours certainly haven't. So let's have a reminder about what is best to enjoy in the sunshine. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio tonight. Thanks, Sharon. We think summer's here. Yes, yes, it's it's been a great spell of weather. So we're going to talk about summer wines. Yes, uh, you know, it's a bit early maybe yet, but it's good to have these things in your mind and to to start planning maybe for uh, when the weather really takes off. Okay. A little later. So lots of different countries here. Yes, yeah, I know we're we're doing a kind of a a breakdown of countries each, each time we come on, but tonight I just thought we'd take a break and look at some of the ones that really suit when the weather's good, you're maybe sitting out um, and want something that's very drinkable, uh, not overly expensive and uh, very fresh and that kind of has summer feel to it. Well, let's start with one of my favourites and that's the Vino Verde from Portugal. Yes, uh, Vino Verde is, is a um, very traditional uh, Portuguese wine. Uh, Vino Verde means green wine, so it is actually very, has a real green tinge in it. It has a slight effervescence similar to a very light, very light Prosecco. Um, but it's a really fresh, I had a glass of this the other night, um, and it's it's lovely. It's really drinkable. It's um, perfect. The alcohol level isn't too high. So it's it's has that, it's, it's perfectly built for sitting outside. The percentage level on it is only 9.5%, which is probably 2 or 3% more, less than most of them, which makes a huge difference especially when you're drinking earlier in the day or in the evening. It definitely is one for the summer, for the fine weather. It's yes. not one for drinking by a, a roaring fire. No, it doesn't work like that at all. It needs to be really cold. Um, and it, this one is called Castle Garcia, a very distinctive label. If you've been on holidays in Portugal, you'll see it in Portugal. It's one of their one of their most prominent uh, and most respected uh, Vino Verdes. Yes, great value, you know, costing around 11 euros a bottle, 11.50 a bottle. Is that made in a different way to other wines because there's the bit of effervescence in it? Yes, indeed, yeah. There's a slight carbonation in it. I mean, very slight now. You can just about see it. Like you're not going to have bubbles rushing up through the glass when you have it. Uh, and it's served in a normal wine glass. It's not served in what you'd have in a champagne glass. Slightly different. little sugar added, which gives us that bit of what uh, forms that natural sugars, along with the natural sugars, and makes that slight effervescence, but really slight. But what it makes is that it makes it really fresh. What sort of grape is that made with? Vino Verde. That's, that's yeah, yeah. actually yeah. the name of the yeah, grape, okay. And is there a part of Portugal that it would come from? Yeah. or it's a Joven. It's coming from the, if you look at Portugal as a, as, a, as a rectangle running down the side of Spain, it's coming from the top left-hand corner. Okay. Out to the coast, which is where the, the sea and where the seafood is, and it goes particularly well with seafood. And you mentioned Prosecco there, and you have a Prosecco from Treviso, yeah. is it? Yes, yeah. This is a Prosecco. This is a Prosecco Versante. It has a screw cap top. Um, it's one from Es Osvaldo. Uh, it's brand new to us. It's a new range of, of uh, they have a Pinot Grigio as well. Really nice products. This is a very good value, costing around just over 10 euros a bottle. Um, but it, everything about the, the, these producers is quality, absolute quality. Um, it has a lovely bubble in it. Um, it has a big sister than full pop-off cork Prosecco as well, which is really nice. Uh, but this is just great value. Perfect for the for summertime drinking. How much is it a bottle? About 11 euros, just over 10, between 10, 15 and 11 euros. Okay, yeah, yeah. that is very good value. Yeah, it is. And yeah. the, the, screw tap, the screw cap is very handy. Oh, it's perfect. You know, it's just ideal, particularly if you're drinking a couple of glasses of it and want to put it back in the fridge. And the only thing is it doesn't last too long because Prosecco is going to die really, but the, the bubble is going to lose in it, but the taste isn't going to change that dramatically. But yeah, the screw cap is really handy, particularly when you're out and you only have to open as many as when you open it as you want it then as opposed to pre-opening anything, which is... And the Proseccos are usually a bit lower in alcohol. They're usually yeah, around they tend 11%. To be a bit, yeah, they tend to be a bit. Um, now, this one um, is 11%. Yeah, you very seldom you get any a Prosecco that will reach up to 12%. Champagne is the same. It just won't have that. Why is that? Um, it's, it's probably the procedure for itself. It, it's a long process that it goes through. Um, for champagne, for the full champagnes, um, a lot of them are coming from the north of, of France, uh, just don't have the sunshine, don't have the sugar in the product, which means it doesn't turn into alcohol, so it's just lower. Um, and these all would have sugar added again, and the reason they add sugar to them is because it generates that process that gives it the bubble, that gives it the natural bubble, as opposed to, it's not injected with, with uh, 
carbon dioxide or anything. It, it has a real natural bubble in it. How long would it take for a bottle of that to be made from the grape being picked until it's in the bottle and ready to sell? Well, this one now, the screw cap ones work kind of a bit quicker. They'll probably be in a bottle within six or seven weeks. Really? Yeah, as quickly as that? As quickly as that. Wow. But it's, it's, the, it's the champagne ones. If you take a full bottle of champagne, that procedure is very drawn out and very complicated uh, with yeast. And um, the yeast tilting bottles and letting the yeast settle to the top and taking that out. Very long process. Hence, you're paying for your product because okay. it's really hands-on. There's no machines that can do it. It's, it's, uh, it's as you see, you need to be able to look at the bottle and say it's ready now and, and very difficult process. And of course, we had the Prosecco scare there last year that there was going yeah, to be a shortage. Really really. Yeah, it's, yeah, everything's okay then. Everything's okay. And I, I was talking to, a, to a, an Italian uh, producer recently about this and we're talking about Pinot Grigio and Prosecco and we were saying that Prosecco is massive, you know, it's huge in Ireland. Yeah, he said it's just a shame Ireland isn't very big. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's 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 very popular, but it's not as big as it's made huge advances in the UK and Ireland, but it's a huge amount of it being produced, and they're extending the area every year. Uh, Prosecco area is growing geographically, which means there's more and more Prosecco being produced in areas that were 20, 30 miles away from the original border of Prosecco. So much more uh, pragmatic about producing it, and there's a lot of producers. There seems to be a lot of it out there. Um, some of the quality is really dodgy. Um, you really need to pay a certain amount of it to get to get a certain and I, I just think you always need to try and find something that's actually produced by somebody as in they produce a label it's their label they have a bit of background to it a bit of tradition and, and uh, um, you know maybe a, even the second generation involved in it but basically you can buy Prosecco in bulk from anywhere and put any kind of label you want on it and they're best avoided. And in terms of duty then, is there a different duty yeah. on Prosecco than there are champagne or anything that has fizz in it compared to ordinary wine? Well, no, the, the, this Frizzante, the one you see with a screw cap is the same as a bottle of wine. Uh, but the one to pop off cork because it's a higher pressure level in the bottle, it's double. Uh, so all champagne is all double. Uh, all the Proseccos with the pop off corks are all double, hence the cost. Okay. So there are 640 a bottle duty on one of those. Yeah, so six forty a bottle, and then if you're buying a bottle at eleven euros, oh, you wouldn't get anything with a pop off cork for eleven euros. Okay. It just wouldn't happen. Um, or like if the you cheapest did, you, you get need them to for like sixteen it. or seventeen euros would be the cheapest. But out of that now, you'd have vat of three fifty. You'd have the six forty duty coming out, and even at that, you'd have very little left for anybody else. So you'd really question. You'd only spend around eighteen or twenty euros on a bottle of prosecco. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to move on now to, is this a French wine? Yes, south of France, Languedoc, uh, just uh, north of Béziers in the south of France. And this is a range that we've just taken on called Bachelory, uh, Domaine de Bachelory. Uh, really relatively small producer, but just a fantastic um, varietal wine range. Um, in this range, we have uh, Pinot Noir, we have uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot in the Reds, we have Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc in the Whites, and then we have a Rosé, which is a Pinot Noir Rosé. And they're great value. This is like a, a just over 10 euros a bottle, and it's a fantastic product. Yeah, I didn't realise now that Rosé, the Pinot Noir grapes made Rosé. Yes, they, they always use red grapes to make Rosé, because the... I think, as, as we said before, the juice that's in a grape is clear. It doesn't have any colour. The only thing that gives wine colour is the skins. So the red wine, the skins are left in there, and that generates the colour. And the longer they're left in with the, with the juice, the longer, the, the more colour they get. The, and with what happens, so with white wine, they can pull out the, 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 the skins and the flesh of the grapes after they mulch together. They can pull them out relatively quickly. Um, with reds, they leave them in there for four or five days to generate the colour the more colour they want and the more tannins they get. But then with the rosé, there's a mid-ground there that they leave them in for a little while just to get the colour in it, depending on what kind of colour they want, and then whip them out. So you end up with that kind of almost like salmon coloured and the lighter ones. And then you see roses that come from Chile and South America were very deep in colour, or from Spain as well tend to have very deep ones. And that's just left in there longer and the skins get more contact and that gives the colour. And what would you recommend putting this rosé with? Is it the sort of drink you can have standalone or does yeah. it go well with certain foods? Well, what roses tend to be is te they tend to be fairly, they're not, they're not that dry. They tend to be a bit more medium, medium 
dry, so they're easier to drink. Uh, like Sauvignon Blanc can be very dry, Chardonnay is a bit more medium, but this is a more fruity kind of medium drink. Uh, they're ideal to drink before you sit down. Like roses are huge in the UK. If you go to a bar in the UK, you'll see two white wines by the glass, two roses and two reds. That's and it's very rare you'd see that here. It should be very unusual mm. to see that here. There might be four reds and four whites here and one rosé. And that might only be for the summer months. It could be dropped for the rest of the year again because it just wouldn't have people drinking it enough mm-hmm. to justify it. And it's saying here that about the fresh red fruit notes and perfect with mm. melon salads, sweet and sour dishes. Mm. That's quite interesting. And exotic cooking. There you go. Well, now, see, the thing is that I suppose there's a bit more body to it because it's it, it has a it's a red grape, so there's a bit more to it. So the it rosy does work. Now it's saying that when they, they say exotic foods, it's very difficult to pick wine with exotic food. But if you're taking the exotic means Asian or anything like that, because the food is so strong, you know the flavors are so strong, you find it very hard to get wine to accompany it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, beer accompanies it much better. Um, so it does. And particularly reds are very hard to put with them because reds react, you know, particularly into a chili. Red really reacts with that when you're drinking it. It's very difficult to do. Um, whereas at least the whites are cold, you know, they have that kind of better feeling. But the rose then has a bit more body to it. But really, Irish people tend to drink rosé when the sun comes out sometime between May and September. Okay. And then the red version of it. Yeah, this is the full red version, which means that this has got the four or five extra days with the... With the uh, grapes in the mulch with the um, in the juice and this is a, a Pinot Noir is the lightest of the reds generally this is a lovely delicate real easy drinking uh, red perfect for people who are moving on who don't drink a lot of red and, and find red a bit overpowering maybe this is the perfect one to start with and what do they retail at? just under 11 euros okay so it's good with the great value yeah. and they're both around 12.5% as well yes. I mean, I wouldn't normally associate a red wine with with summer. I know there's some red mm. wines that you would be drinking that are, some people would chill certain red wines. Yeah, well, if you go to Spain, they tend to chill most of the red wines. Really? Uh, well, mainly because it's too warm not to chill them. Like if you leave them mm. at the temperature, the rest will be at 24, 25 degrees, which is tepid. <laughs> so they have to keep them cool. So they tend to chill them down a little bit more than they should. Uh, so with the idea that when you're sitting outside a Spanish restaurant and put one on a table, it's going to heat up very quickly so that's what they do and the reason about that one is like red wine some people drink red all the time like they don't drink white at all so they're gonna have, they, they might just like something that that they can have it you know for a barbecue at five or six o'clock in the evening where they don't want to have a shiraz from australia that's very heavy and as you sleep by nine o'clock they want something a bit lighter and that pinot noir is perfect yeah, good to know that it's the pinot noir is the lightest of the of yeah. the red good to know that Okay, and then the last one you have is from the Marlborough region. That's New Zealand. New Zealand. And this is Kono. Um, it's, this is a beautiful range of wines from the first 100% Maori-owned vineyard in, in New Zealand. Uh, 100% owned by them. They own a cooperative. They produce some fantastic food, everything from raising their own cattle, but have a, a vineyard as well. And this thing, this wine is winning all around it. It's it's won some fantastic uh, awards in the last couple of years. So it has, but it's a lovely product. Not overly expensive now, not the same price level. That one jumps up, but you're up to like 16 euros a bottle for this now. But it's a smashing product and it looks, it's fresh, it's perfumed. It's, for people who like New Zealand wine, this is, this is, uh, really want to try it's very light in color for the bottle is kind of a uh, kind of uh, putting that okay. kind of tension as you'll notice that when the wine is empty okay. out to make it they want to make it look like it's really fresh yes because it looks very similar in color to the vino verde yeah, yeah it does yeah yeah but the bottle is tinging that in fairness okay. it's a slight green in the bottle okay and i like the way then they have a bit of their story on the label here about being the first um, people, the environmental guardians for generations in the mists of time, yes. our ancestors made an epic journey to this land, which they continue to nurture. That's mm-hmm. people are more in, interested in that side of things I've, now. I have this on, on a good few wine lists now, and uh, it gets a great response because you know when you're when you're I do some work with staff training staff and opening it and what people ask you when you're sitting down at a restaurant what to say. And it's funny, people really latch on to this story of this one. You know, that it's Maori, it's it's the first one really. Uh, like Maori's have been involved in, in wine production before, but this is owned wholly, it's their own vineyard, and it's plus it's part of a whole movement that they have for food. 
um, which is a fantastic story. But the product is really good now. It's not just a you know a, um, a hobby. This is the real deal. They're producing a lot of wine and some really really good product, but nothing cheap at all. It's all really premium quality product. Well, all great looking and sounding wines, Rom, and um, very important to, to stay hydrated during the summer <laughs> now, so it is, so you've picked us right up with that. If people want to order off you, what's the best way sure, for them yeah, to do yes, it? Sure, we have a website, it's forestal.ie, um, or on Facebook, message on Facebook, or it's, it's very easy to find us. Fantastic. Listen, thanks so much for coming in tonight. Thanks, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break we delved into the 2017 archives to get some summer wine recommendations from Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. And as I explained, given that the interview was four years ago, the prices may have changed slightly. So do visit forrestal.ie for more, including contact details. And earlier in the programme, the new chair of the Irish Food Writers Guild, Caroline Hennessy, gave us an insight into the history of the Guild and also shared details about this year's IFWG award winners. And Caroline also told me off air about an exciting label design competition that may be of interest to you or to someone that you know. You must be over 18 to enter as it is for a beer company called 8 Degrees Brewing, which is based in Mitchellstown in County Cork. They're inviting creatives to help them celebrate 10 years in business by designing a label that will stand out on the shelf and bring positivity and excitement, expressing a desire to explore and roam again as the country exits lockdown. They're going to select five winners who will be paid €1,000 for adorning one of 8 Degrees 2021 original Gravity series of eels, laggers and stouts. So visit 8degrees.ie and best of luck if you decide to enter. And that is all we have time for tonight. Thank you so much for listening and to my guests, Caroline Hennessy and Ron Forrestal. And until next week, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!